Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Dorothy Lund, Assistant Professor of Law at the University of Southern California's Gould School of Law. We'll be discussing her article, Non-Voting Shares and Efficient Corporate Governance, which was recently published in the Stanford Law Review. I'll include a link to the article in the liner notes for today's episode. Dorothy, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. As I mentioned in the intro, uh, you recently wrote an article, Non-Voting Shares and Efficient Corporate Governance. Before we get into the, the meat of the discussion, uh, could you introduce to the listeners the idea of voting and non-voting shares in a capital structure, uh, what that implies for firm value, and maybe what some of the motivation uh, behind this article was for you? Yeah, sure. So, the default under state corporate law is for every share, um, every shareholder to get one vote. So that's known as the one share, one vote default. Um, but that default can be modified. So uh, a company can go public with a completely different struct- equity structure. They can have non-voting shares. So those shares would have zero votes. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, they could have 10 times as many votes. These are known as uh, super voting shares. And so a good example of a company that's gone public with all of these is Alphabet. So it used to be known as Google, um, now now Alphabet. And uh, they, Alphabet actually has three different share classes. So they've got class A, which is one vote per share, you know, kind of that standard default rule. Uh, And those can be purchased by anybody. Uh, But then the insiders get to uh, have these Class B shares, the super voting shares with 10 votes per share. And uh, the class, uh, there's also a, a Class C, which is non-voting. Uh, and, and the non-voting shares, I should, I, you know, it, although they have different voting rights, they have all the other same rights and entitlements, uh, cash flow rights, uh, legal rights as uh, the, sh- the shares with votes. So the key difference there is that you know, you're entitled to the same uh, cash flow. You, get, you usually get equal treatment in the event of a takeover, but you just won't get any say in, and you'll be able to vote in, in annual meetings. So it sounds like maybe uh, to have a, a simplifying example, let's say you and I and a third person start a company together, and there are three share classes. One has a is a non-voting share, uh, another is a one share, one vote, and the other is a, a 10 vote per share, and, and you get the 10 vote per share, and I get the one share per vote, and somebody else gets the non-voting share. Our economic interest in, in the company would each be 33.33%, but you having the the ten vote share would be able to to call the shots and electing the the board and, and voting in our annual shareholder meeting. Exactly, that's exactly right. So uh, you discuss in the article that this is not a recent innovation uh, that companies have that the idea of a dual class equity structure has been around for a while and that there's been uh, some opposition. It's It's been something that hasn't really gotten off the ground uh, in, a, in a big, big way. What, what's some of the history behind that? Yeah, the, the history behind this is, is actually really interesting. And uh, 
the more that I looked at it, the more I started to see that uh, dual class has been used in different ways, sort of at different times in history. And that, you know, in the paper, I refer to this as cycles of innovation in dual class structuring. So it's being used to respond to different problems or different, you know, business, uh, business conditions. And uh, each time that you've had this cycle of innovation, there's been a, a public backlash and some kind of regulatory restriction. So, you know, the, the first kind of wave of this was at the, the very beginning of the 20th century. And here we had, a, there was a rise in, in dual class uh, companies. And this was thought to, you know, the, the justification here was actually very different from what we're seeing today. Um, it was uh, used by the bankers who were taking companies public to, you know, keep control with those banks. And so the justification was, this is, well, this is necessary. Um, we're providing reputational services, you know, at a time where there wasn't a lot of disclosure, there was pretty weak corporate law. So these bankers justified this as efficient. But of course, this also generated a huge backlash. Uh, people said, you know, this is the money trust keeping excessive control over American business. And uh, that backlash actually resulted in the first regulatory restriction, pseudo, I should say, pseudo-regulatory restriction of dual class stock. That, that restriction came from the New York Stock Exchange. And the Stock Exchange said, if you want to be listed, you can't have differential voting rights at all. And that policy was in place um, from 1940 until 1986, so nearly 50 years. So that was, you know, sort of the first wave. There's another wave around that same time. This is 1986 was the height of the takeover wave. And so companies started using dual class this time uh, as a takeover defense and started engaging in these recapitalizations. Uh, and this led the SEC to uh, become interested. The SEC took a look at this and said, we're going to now adopt a rule, Rule 19C4, uh, and that's going to require stock exchanges to exclude dual class companies. And that rule was in, in place for much less, <laughs> well, a much shorter period of time. It was overturned two years later by the D.C. Circuit, said, you know, this is outside of the SEC's authority. Uh, and then this kind of ushered in this new period of giving companies freedom to uh, utilize dual class. But the ones that did, you know, the, the business justification was, well, we're a family-owned company and we want to keep control of our family. Or certain media companies like the New York Times said, well, we want to have dual class uh, structuring to protect our journalists. And then uh, Alphabet went public in 2004 and, and they broke the mold and, and broke the mold in a lot of ways, but they did in equity structuring as well because they were the first uh, technology company to use dual class structuring for the, uh, to keep power with uh, these visionary founders. So they issued, uh, they kept again, all of those super voting class B shares with the insiders. They sold only low voting stock to the public. And that was, you know, for a new purpose to insulate these visionary founders from market pressures. And this kicked off a huge wave of uh, technology companies doing this. Facebook has done it, Zillow, Spotify, Lyft most recently. You've gotten a lot of companies that are using this tool class structure following Google's model or, you know, tweaking it in some way. 
And that bringing us to today has precipitated the most recent wave in um, backlash and outcry over dual class structuring. And that, you know, that's where we are now. And I, I believe SNAP, as you discussed in the article, has really broken the mold by only issuing non-voting shares uh, to public public shareholders. So you can't even get a vote if you, you want to go uh, as a public shareholder. Yeah, exactly. I think I think SNAP was really the you know the last straw for people who who had been watching this trend. Uh, you know, Google and Facebook and you know and so on and and who were alarmed. And then all of a sudden, SNAP became the first company to issue only non-voting stock to the public. So you know exactly as you said that no no person buying a share of SNAP will ever have any influence over. Uh, the direction of the company, and you know, people looked at this and 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 were particularly alarmed because the the people who had all the votes were these two young guys in their twenties, and they saw this as just a really terrible example. Of, you know, a company with awful governance, and thought this motivate everything was really motivated critics of this uh, this trend in dual class structuring to to start, you know, rallying regulators, stock exchanges, uh, the indices uh, for some big changes. So speaking of that last straw, what are some of the governance economic uh, reasons that critics offer for opposing dual class stock structures and, and asking uh, regulators, index providers, et cetera, to, to take a stand on them? Yeah. So, the the people who are are opposed, you know, this this even though these dual classes has gone through all these different stages and been used for all these different purposes, the critics haven't changed very much, and their argument is pretty much the exact same as it, as it was a hundred years ago. So they say, you know, this is really all about agency costs. So um, you know, dual class one dual class stock is is insulating a group of insiders that's very likely to increase agency costs. So in the example you gave at the beginning, you know, our, our corporation, somebody could have a 33% uh, stake in the company, but have a much higher percentage of the votes. Um, and so if your voting control is much higher than your equity stake, your incentives aren't going to be perfectly aligned with the shareholders and that's going to affect decision-making. So, you know, if I have 50% or 51% of the voting power, but only a 2% equity stake to take a really extreme example. Um, I might be inclined to use my voting power to maximize my private benefits uh, rather than uh, look out for the shareholder welfare, shareholder value. Um, this might distort my investment decisions. Um, and this also impedes the market for corporate control, right? So, when problems emerge, if, if these shareholders who are really bearing the cost of my distorted decision-making, uh, they're stuck. They can't do anything. They can't sell to, to outsiders who can come in and wage a hostile takeover. They can't uh, get hedge fund activists, can't do as much. Um, so uh, this is this is all about agency costs. And, and they point to, you know, the, by contrast, under one share, one vote, you get this nice natural alignment of incentive between the decision makers um, and the shareholders. So if I'm if I'm an insider and I want to be in control, 
uh, I need to keep a controlling equity stake and I'm going to really bear a substantial proportion of the costs and benefits of the decisions that I'm making. And, you know, if I don't decide to keep control, I sell down my stake uh, and I, you know, start making more decisions uh, that there a majority of shareholders can vote me out of office. So, you know, this is this is sort of the how the argument has gone over time and it continues <laughs> to this day to sort of take this form. What difference from 100 years ago is the role of index investing and, and passive mutual funds and, and ETFs uh, and the, the role of index providers in, in corporate governance? How has that um, made a difference in this current iteration of the debate over dual class uh, equity structures? Yeah, so I think it, uh, it you know, as we as I sort of described that the history of the use and, and regulation of, of dual class stock kind of shows us that it's uh, use of dual class stock is responsive to different market conditions. And I think that we're at a period in which dual class stock can be harnessed to deal with a new market phenomenon that, that may already be create, causing problems, but is likely to do so in the future. And that's, you know, the rise of, of passive investing. So in the last 10 years, there's been a, a lot of concentration in voting power uh, with these largely passive investors. And, and I use the term passive uh, to refer to mutual funds that uh, adhere to an, an indexing strategy. So exchange traded funds and index funds are the, you know, the, the two main passive investors. And those those funds, they don't seek to beat the market. Uh, they instead promise investors that they're going to track the performance of their baseline index as closely as possible. And that's a great thing for investors. You know, this is this is the reason why they've become so powerful is because investors have been flocking to index funds, which give them the ability to broadly diversify, but also charge really low fees. So. You know, again, the reason why they've become so powerful is because they really do offer investors a lot of benefits. But, you know, I've written elsewhere that this rise in indexing has some negative implications for corporate governance. And and that's because these passive funds don't have the same financial incentive to invest in firm-specific information, to invest in stewardship. You know, for one, index funds aren't trading their shares. They're not buying and selling based on how they think the company is going to do. They don't, that's one of the reasons that they can, that they're so uh, cheap for investors. They charge investors such low fees is they're not hiring analysts to, to gather from specific information. But I think that makes them particularly likely to be uninformed. And they also, there's something about the nature of index fund competition. They compete with other funds based on relative performance, which basically means that if I'm an index fund that is investing in stewardship, it's investing in firm-specific information, et cetera, I'm going to benefit all of my rival funds, which tend to have the same percentage of share ownership of the same companies. And so I'm going to benefit my rivals while only I will be bearing those costs. And so that's going to lead me to not want to engage in governance. So as I talk about in this paper, you know, I think that the rise in dual-class uh, structuring could be responsive to this problem and allow companies to sort between their investors, um, you know, passive investors versus informed investors. Uh, and, and if you have the passive investors 
holding non-voting stock, you're actually going to benefit the company and reduce your agency costs. On the ground, uh, and, and kind of this battle between uh, the visionary founders and, and the critics of dual-class equity structures, uh, who, who's kind of winning? What's the, the state of play, or is is it kind of at a, an equilibrium at this point? Yeah, well, so the critics had some some big victories this year, and you know, in particular, uh, the Council of Institutional Investors, which represents a lot of mutual funds and pension funds uh, and other you know institutional investors, they they really led the the charge against dual class company structuring. Um, they directed their criticism in a lot of different directions, um, but the they got real traction from the indices. So as of I think now I, I forget the exact dates, but pretty recently, FTSE Russell. S&P, Dow Jones, um, and MSCI have all uh, sort of in different ways uh, reduced the the influence that dual class companies have in their methodology. So FTSE Russell and S&P, Dow Jones actually said, um, we're going to take uh, dual class companies out uh, so that if you want to make it into the S&P 500, you can't be dual class. And MSCI reduce the weight that the any dual class company would occupy in their index. And this is predicted to have a big impact because as I mentioned, this phenomenon of, of index investing, a lot of money is flowing into index funds. And so being listed on, you know, the S and P 500, the Russell 3000, um, what, whichever index you choose, being listed there is a huge driver of demand. So these exclusion policies or you know reduced weight policies means that uh, if you do decide to go public with a dual class structure, you're not going to get as much demand for your shares by virtue of being excluded from some of these major indices. So that's that was a big victory. Those were big victories for uh, critics of dual class stock. You know, this Council of Institutional Investors and other opponents have have directed their attention and other uh, towards the SEC and stock exchanges as well. Uh, Jay Clayton has said he's he's watching the space. He's not acting now. So you know, who knows what could happen in the future? But um, so far, the indices have been they've gotten the most traction there. So the the critics uh, now and a hundred years ago have argued that dual class structures uh, will tend to entrench management uh, and impose agency cost on uh, shareholders who don't have outsized voting power. Your article is is interesting in that it offers, I think, a more hopeful account for non-voting shares' potential impact on governance and firm value. Could you walk us through that and? How does your insight differ from some of the prior defenses that folks have offered, some of the prior justifications that folks have offered for dual class stock? Yes, uh, that's the, so. This, you know, this is the the insight that I'm I'm hoping to uh, people will take away from this this project is that dual class has been thought of as an entrenchment device, uh, and I illustrate how you could actually use non-voting stock as a non-entrenchment device. So, you know, again, the key insight is that not all, all shareholders are the same. 
Um, some are informed about the company. They're interested in participating in governance. And there's another category of shareholders, which I call weakly motivated shareholders. And those shareholders suffer from collective action problems that basically make it irrational for them to learn about the company or incur any costs, you know, necessary for stewardship. So I explained to you just, you know, just now about why I think a lot of passively managed mutual funds fit in that category. There's also a lot of retail shareholders would fit in that category. You know, the people have been talking about the collective action problems facing retail shareholders for a long time. I mean, it's it, that make it, why, why would you, if you own a couple shares in Microsoft, ever want to invest the time necessary to, you know, to vote in a shareholder election? Um, and, and this is supported by the evidence that most retail shareholders don't vote. I think something like 30% do on average. So it's inefficient for every shareholder to hold the same voting rights. So you can actually use non-voting shares to sort between your shareholders and use them. You know, if you if you were able to issue non-voting shares and have all of the weakly motivated shareholders buy them, you're actually going to improve the efficiency of your corporate governance and you're going to reduce your agency costs. And that's because the non-voting stock is going to amplify the voice of the company's informed investors. So, you know, again, if I'm if I'm a company and I issue non-voting stock for all of my weekly motivated shareholders to buy, informed investors are really going to like that. And they're going to like that because their vote is going to be worth even more. So when problems emerge at the company, uh, those informed outside investors are going to be able to come and, you know, vote management out of office, bring shareholder votes, you name it. They can, they can use those votes to get real change. It also improves the market for corporate control. They can sell to outsiders who can use those strong votes to, you know, do the stuff that they can't do. The holders of the non-voting shares were, are also going to benefit because those shareholders, by definition, don't value their votes at all. They don't want to be voting. It's costly for them to do it. So they get this, you know, discounted product that allows them to sit out of governance altogether. They also get, of course, the benefit of, you know, having the informed investors doing the work for them. So, you know, this insight here is that if you use non-voting stock to sort the investors by, you know, their information and their motivation, you're going to make your corporate governance more efficient rather than less. So this differs a lot. As you mentioned, this is really different from what people have said, uh, what the previous defenses of dual-class stock are, because, you know, other defenders of dual-class stock, you know, they look at the world as it is. They say uh, sometimes it's efficient to insulate insiders. Sometimes it's, it's helpful to give, you know, the visionary founders control and not have them vulnerable to market pressures. And they, they take uh, an increase in uh, agency cost as given. You know, they say, even though it may be that Mark Zuckerberg is going to do some stuff we don't like and, and there's you know some, some problems there, the overall benefits are, are worth that increase in agency cost. So here, you know, this, this is coming from a really different angle because it's not thinking about using dual class to keep power with insiders, but instead to actually improve and, and uh, strengthen the voice of outsiders. Um, that's, the, that's the basic insight. 
It seems like there are two paths then that dual class structures can go. One is the classic story of management entrenching itself, uh, which can create um, added agency costs that um, shareholders with minority or, or no no voting rights bear. Uh, and then you offer a model that does just the opposite. Um, both outcomes seem plausible as, as paths uh, for any given company adopting this sort of structure. What conditions separate those two paths? How can we identify when a company is using a dual-class structure to enhance firm value and, and reduce agency costs versus when it's uh, engaging in entrenching behavior that might be destructive to, to Yeah, so to, to get that nice reduction in agency costs that I'm talking about, you need to ensure that the outside shareholders have a meaningful amount of votes. Um, so... You, you'd need to look and see how the dual class structure is being used. If it's just doing what SNAP did and keeping all of the all of the votes of the company's insiders, SNAP isn't out there using dual class to try to, um, you know, as a bonding mechanism to show they're, they're in tune with their shareholders. They're using it to, to silence their shareholders. And to be clear, I don't have an example of a company that's doing exactly this. Um, I think that it's, you know, that's, sort of a, an interesting puzzle in itself, given the benefits that, that using non-voting stock in this way provides. Why aren't more companies doing that? But you need to have a company who said, you know, look, we are really wanting to demonstrate that we are aligned with our shareholders or, you know, maybe it's a way of signaling our quality. And for that reason, we're going to make sure that, you know, a majority of the votes are in the hands of outside shareholders and that this non-voting stock is uh, is being used not to silence outsiders, but to uh, further empower the, the voice of the outside shareholders. And even though, you know, I've, I think none of the, co- the companies that have used dual-cost stock uh, thus far have, have done this, they're not using non-voting shares to Im- improve their accountability, there are other efficiency benefits that are possible. So, you know, even if you're not keeping all of your shares, uh, the majority of your voting power with outsiders, you do get some efficiency benefits from doing what Alphabet did, for example. So remember, Alphabet has the three classes of shares and, and they allow outsiders to have uh, to buy either class C, which is non-voting, or class A, which is low voting. So um, even though, you know, they're not doing that, there's no agency cost reduction there because all the insiders keep voting control. There is an efficiency benefit because people that don't value their votes, these weakly motivated shareholders, can buy the non-voting shares and they can just free ride without incurring any costs um, associated with voting. So that's a much smaller benefit, but um, maybe something that is uh, going on with some of these companies that issue two classes of of, uh, a non-voting and a a low-voting class to the public. Yeah, that that sounds like a... I think a very reasonable structure that we might might see more of that a company uh, either decides to go public with an option of buying a voting share or a non-voting share, or maybe a company uh, does some sort of split uh, and, and issues non-voting shares. And uh, I, as a retail investor, for example, might uh, be inclined to buy the non-voting share because it's probably slightly cheaper uh, because exactly. it doesn't have that right attached to it. And 
and and rationally, I'm not going to vote anyway. So so why would I want to pay extra? For right. When I was that? researching this, I I was looking at all these uh, seeking alpha message boards and and reading these investor discussions. Should I buy Alphabet A or should I buy, buy C? And people would write and say, Come on, of course you want the non-voting. It's, it's cheaper, it's discounted, and it's you get the same cash flow rights. Plus, you know, who cares? You know, who wants to exercise the vote? Uh, so if you are weakly motivated, non-voting shares are, are great for you. And this is why, you know, it's it's in some ways surprising we haven't seen more companies trying to use non-voting stock in this way. And in the sorting that I was talking about, it will happen naturally for for this very reason. You know, the the fact that voting stock trades at a slight premium to non-voting stock means that if you don't value your vote, you're always going to be lured. Uh, well, not always. You know, there there may be moments when this this wouldn't happen uh, perfectly. But there's a lot of weakly motivated shareholders should be lured to buy the non-voting stock. And actually, if you look at the percentage of retail uh, shareholder ownership of, of Alphabet A and Alphabet C, there are more retail shareholders uh, that, that buy the non-voting stock. That's that's an interesting uh, empirical observation that kind of helps demonstrate that when investors, uh, particularly retail investors, are given this option, they do uh, act uh, Act uh, and as we might expect, they, they would. Dorothy, this has been a great conversation. Uh, if you have any takeaways for markets and investors or for academic listeners, what would those be? So, yeah, there's a couple takeaways. Uh, I think my main takeaway here is that these sometimes these blanket uh, good governance initiatives or uh, restrictions, such as the ban on dual class stock that has been implemented by a lot of these indices. Uh, those can be really harmful. They impede efficient structuring for companies and cut off innovation and governance. So my theory as to why we haven't seen companies using dual class stock in the way I'm saying, despite the very clear benefit, is that dual class stock has a bad name. You know, non-voting stock has a really bad name. Um, if you go public with a dual class structure, the Council of Institutional Investors starts lobbying against you. You might not get your shares listed on major indices. You attract all sorts of bad attention. And and that, I think, cuts off innovation and, and governance, and it reduces tailoring uh, for specific companies. So and this is my guess as to why we haven't seen more experimentation in, in different dual-class structuring because of this blowback. And so, you know, I think it's it's always good to be skeptical and a little critical when someone tells you, you know, oh, this is good governance and this is bad governance and that any given blanket governance restriction is going to be beneficial for all companies. It's good to always look for maybe the, the counterintuitive uh, response to, exactly. to claims like that. Our guest today has been Dorothy Lund, Assistant Professor of Law at the University of Southern California's Gould School of Law. We discussed her article, Non-Voting Shares and Efficient Corporate Governance, which was recently released in the Stanford Law Review. I'll include a link to that article in the episode notes for today. Dorothy, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks so much.